What's the relationship between religion and conflict? How can we make peace with violence in the Bible? What do Christians have to contribute to peace building? And how can we use the gift of forgiveness to resolve conflict? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to Jolyon Mitchell. Jolyon is professor within the School of Divinity, Edinburgh University, specialising in religion, violence and peacebuilding, and also the director of the Centre for Theology and Public Issues. And our question today is, how can Christian faith be a force for peace in the world today? Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Jolly and Mitchell, welcome to Talking Theology. Thanks for having me and thanks for coming to Edinburgh. It's great to be here. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your story, and in particular how you ended up here in Edinburgh and what your roles have involved. I've been working here for over two decades and I work around the area of religion, violence and peace building with particular reference to the arts. Before I worked here, I worked for the BBC, particularly for BBC World Service as a journalist and as a producer. But since working here, I've focused very much on the relationship between media, religion and culture, but focusing particularly on issues related to violence and peace building. You've got a Durham connection. Tell us about that. Well, I worked at Durham at St John's College at Cranmer Hall and trained there and also did a master's in theology with someone called Dan Hardy. Uh, And it was extraordinary experience, actually, Durham, because I lived both in an urban studies unit in Gateshead and remember looking out of the window and seeing what looked like a sort of grey concrete jungle, getting on the train and arriving in a place that felt like a golden Narnia. So in many ways, it was a, a very diverse experience that also allowed me both to have a placement at Durham Prison, but also at the local BBC. So the combination of those two factors allowed me to explore how theology interacts with not just books, but also contemporary issues, whether that's broadcasting or justice, or simply issues related to poverty and um, urban deprivation. You've spoken already about the way in which your particular interest is around um, uh, peace building and understanding the wider background of religion and violence and the way in that sh- which they engage with one another. Tell us where that interest first came from and what are the ways in which you find it such a fascinating topic to explore? Partly professionally as a journalist covering stories about whether that be civil war or, for example, we covered... Uh, the fight in Lebanon, which led to, for example, Terry Waite being uh, kept in solitary confinement for a number of years and covering those kind of stories of how religion interacted with violence opened a window onto a world that I knew I knew very little about. But also covering perhaps specific conflicts that might be, for example, the first Iraq war as well. And, and areas like that maybe think about the relationship again between religion and violence. And then coming here, one of the first PhD students I worked with was actually a, a guy who had escaped just 
on his own with his family in a car out of Rwanda during the genocide that claimed as many as 800,000 to a million people's lives. So hearing his story, which he didn't tell immediately, he told over a number of years, over three or four years, those kind of stories made me ask, well, what is the relationship between religion and violence? And is there a role that theologians can play in bringing peace in situations that sometimes are fraught with difficulty and trauma and heartbreak? Let's go back to first principles as we explore this question together of religion and violence. And in particular, looking at the, the, the Christian faith, there's obviously a strong strand from the Beatitudes, blessed other peacemakers, around Christianity as a, a religion of peace. And yet there are, its central text and almost its central motives are filled with violence. Let's explore that for a little bit and find out what your perspective on that is. First of all, looking at scripture, which as we read it day by day in morning prayer in chapel, we're confronted with those texts of violence. Um, What are the ways in which that can be understood in a way that we don't just kind of jettison it and say this is this is too too brutal to be heard? That's a good question. And in many ways, I still feel a learner in terms of thinking about textual engagement with some of the sometimes described as terrible texts but I think it's good not to run away from them but to face them head on and face actually some of the darkness and shadows in those texts one way of course is to run away or put your head in the sand another way is to say actually what are they an articulation of you could take for example something like one of the psalms where you have somebody picking up a baby and smashing it against the wall one way to say we just cut this out of the text but in some ways that's dishonest to the text it is there and it's interesting thinking about how that kind of language may be an expression of anger and rage so that one way of participating with that text is not to deny the reality of the rage but see the text as an opportunity not just to lament but also to cry in anger and rage but of course that kind of argument is limited when you start looking at some of the more genocidal texts and I'm no Hebrew Bible scholar but it it is worth facing some of the texts where it appears that the nation of Israel is is encouraged towards genocide. Now, how you handle those texts are open to lots of different questions. Now, I've read different Hebrew Bible scholars and they approach in different ways. But one way in which you can do it is to face the reality of that text, not pretend it's not there, not cut it out, but say that perhaps... One way of reading these Hebrew Bible texts is that it's polyvalent. In other words, there are many different voices here are being expressed. And that this is one expression that is worth engaging with. But they also need to be balanced hermeneutically. And of course, this raises a very important question about how we handle texts. If you take these texts out of context, out of the context of the wider Hebrew Bible, or indeed the whole Bible of the, both the New Testament and Hebrew Bible, then of course you can, you can say these are encouragements towards violence. If, however, you, you take them the wider context such as loving God uh, with all your heart and all your mind and loving your neighbour with all your heart and all your mind and loving also um, your enemy then all of a sudden those texts take on a different colour it's as if the shadows are still there but there's a different sort of light casting across them so I think it's important to develop a hermeneutic which is if you like taking seriously different texts that are brought into different conversations because for me actually the text at the heart the story at the heart of the New Testament is a non-violent one and because it's non-violent that does influence how I read some of the more violent texts what are the key 
texts you'd go to in the New Testament to persuade you about its non-violent characteristic? Well, I suppose I would look as a, firstly as a narrative. I wouldn't necessarily take one singular text. I mean, you mentioned Blessed are the Peacemakers, and we could use that. We could use Turning the Other Cheek and so on, or Loving Your Enemy. Those are useful texts. But I think thinking about the whole narrative of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is offered at various stages the potential to take power through violence. He does not take that option. He takes a very different way towards a way of suffering, towards facing violence, not with violence, not with an army, but with nonviolence. That, in a way, is a different kind of confrontation, which I, I mean, I found fascinating, challenging, and actually left makes makes me one makes me wonder whether i could do that in certain situations but i suppose it is following the man from galilee jesus of nazareth that raises for me the most profound questions about non-violence do you see that non-violence uh theme continued in the post-resurrection era i.e. in the in the, in the in the the epistles as well as that as the way the way the tradition developed it's a really good question i've never thought of that in 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 detail, except I suppose if you think about some of the the exhortations in the Pauline literature around love being at the core of things, you know, n- knowledge may puff up, but love builds up. Or to think about how 1 Corinthians 13, if you take it out of context, it's a lovely thing to have at weddings. But of course, for me, it's it's a hermeneutical key to understanding the whole, the whole of how you deal with a divided community. Because if you put love at the centre of it, then actually that's a way of trying to repair sometimes fractured relationships or problematic engagements with people, both within the community and without. So I suppose that's one way. But I can guess, I'm wondering whether behind that question you're thinking about text, for example, in, in Revelation. I know that's not a which of course you could say well there's there's full of there's full and violent metaphors there and i suppose again i would be wanting to encourage us to think and i'm no new testament scholar but to think about the historical context in which that emerged out where clearly christians were being persecuted against a very powerful empire and how do you hold on to a a belief in a a a crucified uh, jesus in the face of imperial power and and it strikes me i I think i'd that was at the back of my mind but also this sense that one knows from the first century background that the political and religious fervor was growing as the first century developed obviously led to the fall of jerusalem in ad 70 in the light of that you find these pauline texts that are remarkably free of this kind of political call to arms that was building up in the new testament and it's that very absence of politically engaged language but rather pray for your emperors be a good citizen that strikes me reinforces a non-violent, non-violent narrative. Yes, and I, I think as you were talking there, it's interesting. I, I found myself thinking about. I've worked quite a bit on Rwanda, both pre, during, and after the genocide. Having worked there a bit and thought about it, partly because of the student I mentioned, but also because of visiting there, and that had a profound impact on how I thought about some of these texts. Partly because I remember going to, for example, a little church outside uh, Kigali, a few hours drive away which was a place that was supposed of sanctuary and safety, where texts such as the ones we've talked about were read. And yet, a few days after the beginning of the genocide, something like three to 5,000 people went for sanctuary and safety and yet were murdered in a place where those texts were talked about. That's why I'm, 
I hold back from what I'd see as a very strong pacifist position. I think I have very strong pacifist tendencies, but I do know at that point it would be possible to make a strong argument that actually if the United Nations had been engaged in defending the weak, the poor, hundreds of thousands of lives would have been saved. And it would have involved that would have been involved with potentially having to use their arms in order to defend them. So for me... One might hear more of the language of Revelation than we might hear of some of the other New Testament texts. But it's also interesting to think, isn't it, about the the rage that Jesus expresses when faced by religious hypocrisy, uh, religious injustice, when he turns the tables over um, in the temple. Um, That's going to the very heart of of Second Temple Judaism, isn't it? It's, a, it's, a, it's an economic act. For me, that's a deeply political act as well. And actually that turning over the tables might also be a challenge to some of the people who were engaged in the church in Rwanda who become part of the Hutu power movement, saying that actually we need to be powerful here. So it's interesting how you confront power with power. There are some scholars who would argue that the largest number of martyrs in the 20th century um, were in Rwanda. From scripture as a whole, can we just look at the central, one of the central motifs of of Christian faith, which is the cross? And we have this, um, we have this apparent contradiction going on between peace with God being achieved through um, um, a metaphor of violence, through a reality of violence, as, 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 as given in the ancient Roman world. What are we to make of this apparent contradiction going on of, of peace and violence happening in the same place? And, and to what extent does that confuse the picture? Well, I'm interested you use the word metaphor there, because for me, part of what I read the New Testament is doing is stretching for metaphors that help us understand what happened, on, as you two described it, on the side of a hill where blood was spilt. And it's interesting thinking about that space. And how do you make sense of that? In a first century context, I, I imagine, for example, someone like Paul looking around in his marketplace and seeing, for example, uh, some sacrificial sacrifices going on in a temple or perhaps seeing slaves in the slave market or perhaps looking up and seeing a law court and thinking, OK, these are metaphors that I can draw on to make sense of this. Because, of course, it's it's an extraordinary claim, isn't it, that the most distasteful, disgusting way of death here on a cross is transformative. That's an extraordinary thing to make sense of. And for me, that really stretches theology. It clearly stretched Paul's theology and as it, in the same way it stretched the gospel writer's theology to try and express that and explore that. So those different kinds of metaphors. And you'll notice there that I'm, I'm avoiding trying to get tumbling into atonement theory reflection because in a way I see something before that as something sort of something raw and more dynamic. Um, and it raises for me all so- sorts of questions, not just about first century metaphors, but also for 21st century metaphors. How do Christian theologians and Christian leaders and in fact, any Christian talk about what happens on a side of a hill in a way that engages in our situation, which doesn't sound completely weird or nutty, but also does not, if you like, impoverish the language of Christianity. So that's something I'm still trying to learn how to do. But I think it's interesting. You also talked earlier about post-resurrection. For me, the transformative event is not 
staying with the crucifixion. It's actually, and I think it was Mourner Hooker, the New Testament scholar, said it's very important not to drive a wedge between crucifixion and resurrection. That actually it's when you bring them together, there's something transformative because then you see that the story does not end on Good Friday. It doesn't end in the silence of Holy Saturday, but actually it begins to transform or it's transformed by what happens on on a Sunday. We've looked so far at... um what these central resources of of Christian theological thinking, these classic resources in terms of scripture and and cross and resurrection, where violence sits within them and how they might be used and understood differently. Moving now to looking at not just about non-violence, but actually peace building, peace making. What are the resources that you think Christians have to bring to that theological and contemporary project um, and how have you seen them prove fruitful one of the ways that peace studies i think has enriched my understanding of some of that question has made the distinction between peacekeeping peacemaking peace building and i suppose i would argue that in each of those areas uh, religious leaders have christian leaders have something vital to contribute. Now that might be, for example, in peacemaking, to contribute to conversations about how do you bring peace between leaders. One of the criticisms of the Oslo Peace Accords uh, were that they failed to include religious leaders in the conversations. They were the, the Concord, they were the uh, the Oslo Accords were about the Palestinian and Israeli sort of Middle East in the 1990s, yeah. which a lot of people thought fantastic. Yeah. We have an Israeli-Palestinian shaking hands on in front of the White House. But that was a political dialogue, you exactly. Say. And, it and one of the criticisms, mm. and I think a reasonable one, is that they didn't deal with the the mid mid level and grassroots leaders, who are often religious leaders. They might be the imam, the rabbi, uh, the pastor, the priest. Because they weren't involved, then there's an argument that that's one of the reasons why the Oslo Accords, even though they promised so much, potentially failed. So I would suggest it's there in peacemaking. It's there also in peacekeeping. Now, th- this is slightly more complex because the peace, peace, peacemaking is about what happens around a table. Peacekeeping is about the blue hats, isn't it? It's about the people who are actually helping to... Uh, bring peace. But I'd argue that often some of the, the soldiers, and I've talked to a number of peacekeepers, who say that actually they've learned the importance of working with religious leaders. And that might be, for example, a religious leader who has access to some people who might be classed as, inverted commas, terrorists or extremists, but actually say, no, we really need to talk to these because they have the way in. They can actually talk to them in a way that will say, hang on, we don't need to resort to car bombs or to suicide attacks here to actually bring peace. So the third category, um, we looked at peacemaking, peacekeeping, but would also be around peace building, which is more of an umbrella term. That's where I think... uh, Religious leaders have a vital role to play. I've recently been working with Israeli, uh, with Jewish, Christian, Muslim religious leaders in Israel, Palestine, and also actually Palestinian and um, Israeli journalists. But what struck me there is learning from the different religious leaders in what is a conflict situation, learning from them and hearing their stories of how their faith can inform and enrich peace building. Because peace building isn't just something you do at the end of a conflict situation. It's something you do before a conflict, during 
during a conflict and after a conflict. And that may be everything from informing and enriching sermons or uh, religious discourses uh, through to what happens with small communities, base communities, um, through to how you deal with and teach people who perhaps have lost people very close to them. For example, bringing together uh, the mothers who have lost sons, daughters from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and allowing them to come together in safe spaces. Sometimes religious groups can help to create those safe spaces. What are the themes, thinking about that dialogue and those conversations in particular, what are the themes that have come up with the your conversations with the religious leaders and then with the journalists and are there any kind of points of correlation what are, are there any distinctives there i should say to begin with I, rem- I was talking recently to a friend who works at the uh, british consulate and i said you know i feel completely out of my depth here and he looked at me and said don't worry we all feel out of our depth here and i think there's something i found quite liberating about that because i realized the more you work in research the Israeli-Palestine conflict, the more you realise how little you fully understand, particularly as an outsider. So I say that in a way as a beginning, that I'm very much a learner. And in a way, the more times, and you perhaps have found this as well from your work in um, Israel and Palestine, that the more you go there, the more you realise you don't necessarily fully understand. But I suppose to to go back to the the core question, I think the things, I've, if I've understood the question rightly, that the things I've particularly learnt is that Sometimes journalists are very uh, suspicious of religious leaders and sometimes religious leaders are very fearful of journalists. And part of the joy of this conversation is trying to dissipate some of that fear because sometimes religious leaders feel they've been very burnt by journalists. And sometimes that's true, they have been. And sometimes journalists feel that this religious leader is not giving me the truth. He's not or she's not opening up, and actually in the Middle East it's normally he, but I mean, they're not opening up, they're not being truthful here, they're not, they're, not, they're not squaring with me here about the real situation. So in a way, part of a dialogue, and part of the difficulty actually, is to try to get people into the same room. One of the difficulties in the current Middle East is a, a policy which says this is not a normal situation. So there's one group who's saying this, we need to follow denormalization. we therefore won't come into conversation because actually if we do we're suggesting we're happy with the status quo and actually this takes us back to how can you have conversations which allow you also to turn the tables on their head and what distinctively kind of are there any distinctively christian resources that can be brought into those conversations you're talking across a a fairly wide theological and religious um, spectrum there but are there are there resources from your own Christian theology that, that you're just aware, perhaps in the voices of others, have particular traction? Yes, I think in a way we, we've been talking about some of them. Clearly there are textual resources. There are rich, rich texts. I can't remember which pope it was. Was it Gregory who said the wonderful thing about the Bible is that a child can paddle in it and an elephant can swim in it? There is a sense in which these texts, I think, are, are layered and partly layered towards encouraging thinking about um, how you build peace that's that's one textual resource but of course texts are not things that we just engage with as individuals they are things that we engage with as communities and what's exciting about that is there's 
communities of interpretation. So for me, churches that work around texts and say, actually, these texts, if we bring them into this conversation, they can help to bring peace. But of course, they're not just communities of interpretation, they're communities of worship as well. Mm. That for me, worship is a resource that, if you like, frames conflicts, that allows us to not just uh, frame, but also reframe these conflicts. um, So that You could say that journalists have a great gift for describing things. The interesting thing is to think about how you go on and re-describe realities. And perhaps that's a resource that you can find in text, in worship, in worshipping communities. But I think finally, I think it's also lives. That one of the things that I have been so impressed with is a number of people who I I won't name because of breaking confidences, but thinking of Christians uh, working in Jerusalem, working in West Bank, who have been deeply hurt and yet believe passionately that the way that they live their faith out is not by acting out violently in response but acting out through trying to being ambassadors of reconciliation to try and articulate through their lives forgiveness you've taken the word from me which is forgiveness what is it about that and i'm thinking about the worship which feeds a life of forgiveness you talked about worship being a sense that frames story or reframes a story do you see connections between the way in which i'm just thinking aloud here whether those worshiping spaces become spaces which feed an orientation towards forgiveness and therefore reconciliation I suppose for me, forgiveness is a craft. It's a daily thing as well as a singular thing. So it's easy to think, oh, I've forgiven this person. Then you find, well, why am I still cross with them? Uh, And vice versa. So I think for me, worship is about training, crafting, disciplining. It's also, of course, isn't it, about discovering that actually we often drop things, make mistakes, and we are forgiven. And on the basis of the, the forgiveness that we experience, we can both forgive, but also perhaps ask for forgiveness of someone which we've hurt or annoyed or done worse things to. So there is a sense in which one of the great gifts of Christianity is, is, is it not, is that we are invited uh, to a table where we celebrate forgiveness, where we experience forgiveness and where we are encouraged to go out and be ambassadors of forgiveness. It's, it, it always strikes me when we pray the Lord's Prayer that we ask for forgiveness of our own sins before we articulate how we forgive others. And this is, as you described there, about a recognition within a context of Christian worship that we ourselves need forgiveness before we might be involved in forgiving others. And as you say, being gathered around that table. I know some of the work you've done has been looking at the way in which arts can play a particular role in peace building. What are the ways you've experienced that to be really fruitful? One of the things I found extremely helpful um, is a scholar based at the University of Notre Dame. He's a Catholic who talks about the ambivalence of the sacred. Uh, His name's Scott Appleby. In other words, sometimes religion can drive people towards acts of extreme violence. This is the, the myth of religious violence, but it's a reality sometimes. But also, and it's often left out of news frames, religion can drive people towards extraordinary acts of peace building, of bringing forgiveness, and Christianity can do that at its best. I think I'm struck by how sometimes the arts can also be ambivalent. In other words, the arts can encourage us towards acts of violence, but it also can encourage us towards acts of peace building. And I think of very concretely examples that I've researched in some detail, for example, in Mozambique, you probably have come across it, the idea of weapons being given in, turned into pieces of art, and used not to kill people but to celebrate um, 
communities brought together and also as symbols of art such as the throne of weapons or the tree of life these that transforming arms into art is a project that's spread all over the world so you can find it in iraq you can find it in the states you can find it in germany and i've been very struck by that as one example but for me there's much more it's not just about transforming violence into peace there are other examples such as the way in which art can bear witness to violence and actually can also seek for truth. You can see that in some of the art emerging out of South Africa, uh, some of the churches there, of not just bearing witness to what happened, but also pointing to some of the terrible things that have happened, but also pointing towards reconciliation as well. But also not just those bearing witness and seeking truth, but perhaps most excitingly actually showing the way of peace. And that could be perhaps through visual art, it could be through drama. It could be through film. And in a way, part of what I found inspiring over the last years is tracing those ways in which arts can not just celebrate, but also commend violence. I think of perhaps just a number of quick statues. If we've got time to just articulate those. One statue uh, was made by Kathy Coldwitz, a, a German artist, mm-hmm whose son, Peter, Mm. you maybe know the story, Mm. was sadly uh, killed in the first days that he was fighting the First World War. She took about the same time to create a piece of art to commend, to remember his death. And it's called Grieving Parents. It's two, you're nodding and I can see that you maybe know the piece. It's worth looking up online. Two parents, one head down, in grief, the other looking into the distance towards actually where Peter is buried because these statues are in there. These are two people separated in grief. That's one piece of art. Clearly art can articulate grief, but also I think of in Coventry Cathedral or a similar piece of art in Bradford Peace Studies or a similar piece of art in Berlin in the what was called the death zone. Now, of two people hugging in closeness, they are reunited is sometimes known as reconciliation that's a very different model isn't it of art of celebrating those two those are two if you like two extremes aren't they on the one hand two people separated by grief and perhaps that could lead towards violence it doesn't but it can incapacitate or another piece of art celebrating reunion i think of one final piece which is two people in uh, in londonderry or Derry where you have two people reaching over a divide. I think it's called hands over the divide. And they're reaching towards each other, but they're not quite touching. And for me, that's part something captured there that is actually celebrating peace building of a move towards reconciliation, that is bringing people away from grief and heartbreak, but towards reunion and reconciliation. But they're still not quite there together. And that, for me, is part of the joy and challenge of Christian theology, is thinking about how you encourage divided communities together to, if you like, be brought together around a table of peacemaking and peacebuilding. You've given us a few glimpses into the ways in which you've experienced this for yourself in the different places where you've been whether that's Rwanda or uh, Mozambique just as we draw to a close can you give us a sense about and you told us the story about your PhD student who first really kind of stimulated this 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 kind of passion and interest can you just give us a glimpse or perhaps just a few more thoughts about the way in which this has enriched and stretched your own discipleship and your own faith as you sought to follow Christ faithfully. I think I'd want to invite you to 
stand or walk with me through Damascus Gate into the old city and stand for a moment as we walk down there and then we come to the Via Dolorosa and stand there just for a moment and watch maybe some pilgrims walk by but then also watch some people dashing towards uh, the western wall to pray Druze uh, and then also watch some uh, Muslims heading towards prayers uh, in the mosque and to think there as a Christian okay I'm a Christian here and I'm watching these people from three Abrahamic religions working working together sometimes they simply don't recognize each other and i'm thinking what's the role there as a christian what's my role there to to bring about peace in those traditions and of course that's an incredibly arrogant thing to say and to think who am i to say that to? Um, and yet there is a challenge there to think about how do we in that situation bear witness to peace and that to me has been a real challenge. I suppose I'd want then to walk with you on towards a church that I found incredibly annoying, actually, even though it's the most fam- one of the most famous churches in Christendom, or what was Christendom, um, in terms of t- we would go down to the Holy Sepulchre. And why it's so annoying to me is it's such a mess. It's such a cacophony of different traditions. And sometimes there are people there fighting over the right to who should clean it up. And I'm, I'm left thinking there, this is my tradition. I'm a Christian here. This is actually the heart of Christianity. This is where it's most likely the crucifixion took place. It's most likely the resurrection took place. This is a mess. And yet here am I called to serve in that situation. Of course, not to serve in the Holy Sepulchre, but to serve in the places that are messy and not not tidy. And in a way, that that experience of thinking about of walking in spaces that are riven by conflict has been deeply challenged. Because in some ways you could say that in an academic context there are all sorts of conflicts going on. Uh, you may feel, and of course this is not a place where there's lots of gunfire fire going out, going on, but there are inevitably in university situations there are conflicts. In the same way in, in, in a, a British situation at the moment there are lots of sorts of conflicts so i think the call towards peace building is very loud and clear even in situations that seem safer and more comfortable but i suppose i keep in my mind jerusalem not just because of the spaces but because of what those places resonate with and pointing towards um, jesus of nazareth who calls us all to be peace builders you've articulated very clearly the call on Christians to be part of a peace building movement but you've also shared your own story and what that has meant for you Uh, Johnny and Mitchell thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology thank you very much you have been listening to Talking Theology a podcast from Cranmahal Durham Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.